Hey, it's Brian Curtis from The Ringer, and I want to tell you about the Press Box podcast. The Press Box is a podcast for anybody who likes news, whether it's about sports or politics or pop culture, and wants to understand how that news really gets made. We have new shows every Monday and Thursday. We have long interviews with everyone from John Krakauer to Joe Buck. Your social media feeds are bursting with information every day. Let us help you sort it out. Join us on the Press Box. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I'm Tara Palmieri. I'm Puck's senior political correspondent, and this is Somebody's Gotta Win. On a surface level, the results of the Michigan primaries for both Republicans and the Democrats was unsurprising. Joe Biden won, and so did Donald Trump. But it's the percentage of people that didn't vote for each candidate, which is going to be the most concerning thing for both of them heading into 2024 in this swing battleground state. For Donald Trump, he won 70% of the vote but 30% decided to vote for Nikki Haley. That's concerning in a state where swing voters, often women, college educated, might decide they don't want to vote for Donald Trump in 2024, even though they may have voted for him in 2016 when he beat Hillary by just 10,000 votes in Michigan. He went on to lose to Joe Biden by 150,000 votes in Michigan. So that 30% is a very concerning number for his campaign. As for Biden, he won by 80% of the vote, but 20% voted uncommitted. 100,000 voters in Michigan wanted to send the message to Joe Biden that they are unhappy with his foreign policies, specifically over his alignment with Israel and the war in Gaza. In this episode, I talked to Hunter Walker, a journalist who knows a lot about what Joe Biden had to do to bring the Democratic Party together from the left to the center to take on Donald Trump and defeat him in 2020 and what kind of hurdles he has to get over this time around. Hunter, thanks for joining the show. So the thesis of your book, The Truths, 
progressive centrist in the future of the Democratic Party was really tested this week with the vote in Michigan, right? Um, clearly, there is a rift between the establishment, the Democratic establishment, meaning, you know, Joe Biden, the White House, the DNC, and the progressives in the Democratic Party. And it's over the war in Gaza. There are about 100,000 people who voted uncommitted in the Democratic primary on Tuesday night. And obviously, this was a message vote, right? It was a protest vote. And it's not to say that these people are going to vote for Donald Trump instead of Joe Biden, but they may stay home. They may vote for Cornell West or Jill Stein. And like you write in your book, Joe Biden was able to bridge the divide he between the party. He was able to heal the rifts in the party in 2020. There was also the threat of Donald Trump that that helped to heal the rifts as well. <laughs> the threat of the, you know, the big orange monster. <laughs> but what can he do now? What can he do with this situation in Gaza? And the fact that students and African-Americans and Muslims are protesting him. Well, first off, uh, Tara, thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I love your pod um, and the stuff thanks. you're writing over at Puck. Um, and I think our book tries to do so much of what you do very well, which is, you know, tell the insider story. Right. And essentially, you know, Donald Trump is such a threat to politics as we know it and the democratic order that he takes up all the oxygen in the room. And, and, you know, this led to like an avalanche of reporting where we knew, you know, who was who up and who was down in a given day, even after he left the White House. We know what soda he's drinking. And, you know, we seem to live and die with the man's moods. And yet, as much as like Donald Trump, um, Put the country through an identity crisis. At the same time, the Democrats were going through an identity crisis of their own. And our thesis is essentially that it's a very much unresolved one. Uh, because as much as Joe Biden did manage to win with this fragile alliance between progressives and the center, it is quite a shaky one. Um, and also, I think there's a larger question of who will lead the party and what message they will have after Joe Biden is gone. I think, you know, where you saw progressives decide not to primary Joe Biden um, this time around, uh, that was very much a temporary accord, as you say, as they were confronted with the threat of Trump. Also, the rearranging of the primary calendar made it more difficult for a grassroots candidate to challenge Joe Biden, the Democratic National Committee decided to start the primary in South Carolina rather than Iowa. But we'll go into that a little bit later as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the primary calendar is something we dig into a lot in the book. And it's, a, I think, a really under-discussed story. Um, and it very much was a creation of Joe Biden. But we can, we can get into that in a second. But I think your first point is really important, which is, you know, Joe Biden would not have won without our titular truce with the left. It was already a shaky one that took a lot of deft behind the scenes deal making that we chronicle mm. some of it for the first time in this book. And Gaza is an issue that is almost uniquely, uniquely designed um, to blow up that alliance. Uh, essentially, okay. Joe Biden, you know, when I say he won with a coalition with the left and the center in, in demographic terms, that essentially means he brought out the youth vote to almost Obama like numbers and some measures exceeding Obama. He had really, really strong support um, among the minority community and then enough support among, you know, independents and working class white voters where, you know, it all came together for him. And what we're seeing with Gaza is young voters who are so crucial to Biden's coalition and Democratic victories in general, um, you know, 
according to some polls, three quarters of them disapprove of the way he's handling this. Um, I've also noticed, I mean, the Times has done some great reporting on how black leaders are really concerned about the issue in Gaza. And I was talking to a progressive operative this morning. There's there's not a ton of public polling on Gaza and race, but they were saying that, you know, there's some private polls they've had a look at where um, the divide is really stark and black and Arab voters are just really strongly upset with how the president has been handling this issue. So Biden's coalition was was already fragile and and Gaza seems poised to shatter it just as he's heading into another campaign. The thing that's really interesting in a lot of the interviews that I've watched um, and read about, um, you see them on CNN, read them in the New York Times, when they speak to these Arab leaders in Michigan where there's a huge Arab population, they don't really care if not voting for Joe Biden or voting for Cornell West in the general election will help elect Trump. It seems to me like they're so angry they cannot fathom voting for Joe Biden. How does he win these voters back? Or are they lost forever? You know, Biden world folks who I, I've been hearing from have been sort of dismissing the importance of all this. How? <laughs> you can lose Michigan by a hundred thousand votes. <laughs> so right? I was talking to I was talking to Ron Klain actually just before I got uh, this is Biden's former chief of staff and and as mm. we cover in the book, he was really an instrumental figure in building the bridge to the left. Um, that helped Joe Biden win mm -hmm. in 2020. And that was crucial for getting a lot of his first term agenda passed. And Ron was sort of saying he's confident that ultimately voters are going to choose um, Biden over Trump, no matter how they feel about anything else. These are false threats, you think, right now? Well, I think, you know, that that's a solid argument. You know, um, uh, Lupe B. Lupin, uh, better known as NYC Southpaw on Twitter, uh, who I wrote this book with, the two of us conducted, you know, hundreds of interviews with people uh, on all sides of the Democratic Party, from socialist activists on up to the Biden White House and Obama world. Um, and the one thing that Democrats of all these different stripes can agree on is that Donald Trump is an existential threat. So okay. when it came to holding together his party in 2020, and when it comes to maintaining that alliance essentially under duress caused by Gaza, uh, you know, I think Ron Klain is right. Trump may be the best ally that Joe Biden has. At the same time, I think, you know, the point you're bringing up is an extremely significant one. Um, we see Biden world saying, okay, you know, it's just 100,000. I, I saw would make the point this morning that this is just 100,000 people. But as you were alluding to, this is Michigan. This is one of the most crucial swing states there is. And, you know, this is one of those states where, where 10,000, 20,000 votes matter. Um, we've seen over the mm. last two elections how a handful of votes in a handful of crucial states, including Michigan, are, are really the whole ball game. Right. I mean, the Clinton campaign would claim that Jill Stein, a third party, Rob them of Michigan. Yeah. And and I don't know about all that, but but you know what we did see, and we cover this in the book, um, in 2016, I believe, uh, and we make this case in the truce, that there's convincing data showing that the rift between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and the rift between the center and progressives mm -hmm. paved the way for Donald Trump. You know, the number of Democratic voters who stayed home was greater than the Trump margin, right? And mm. You don't have to take my word for that necessarily, because one thing we found in reporting this book was that Obama, um, you know, absolutely believed that the rift in the party um, had had, you know, brought the world Trump. And he was personally determined, you know, not to see that happen again. And, you know, we've uncovered a private speech he gave to Democrats. We've talked to people in his orbit and and 
Obama sees the youth vote as the whole ballgame. Um, that's what he was telling Democrats behind closed doors in 2019. Um, that's what we've heard rec- as recently as a couple of weeks ago. You know, his team was saying that's that's his main concern in this election. And as I was saying earlier, young people are really upset by Gaza. So I, I don't think, you know, Biden's allies, as much as they're confident people would choose him over Trump, can dismiss all this because it's hitting in key swing states and key constituencies. One One other thing I'd point to is the polling and focus groups that I heard about this morning included some with black voters in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. um, And they Mm. are completely upset by this. And you can't get more crucial for Joe Biden than Philadelphia, than Pennsylvania and Michigan. Do you think that it's the perception that Joe Biden is the establishment candidate, just like in the same way that Hillary Clinton was perceived to be the establishment's candidate? Is that the problem right now? Well, you know, as you were saying, I mean, there's a lot of emotion, particularly among Arab leaders. And I think it's it's mm. interestingly, we're also seeing it echoed in the black community who who seem to have a, a, a clear connection they're drawing with this type of... Um, so you think they don't mind that he's the establishment candidate? They just are unhappy with his position on Gaza? I, I think Gaza has been uniquely bad for him. Um, I okay. think that we saw progressives pre-Gaza line up pretty well behind Joe Biden. Uh, and again, I think the best evidence for that is you're not seeing AOC in the primary. You're not seeing Ro Khanna in the primary. You're not seeing Bernie in the primary, right? They all sort of lined up behind Joe Biden. And but I arguably, think- they couldn't do it because the Democratic National Committee changed the calendar to start in South Carolina. I don't. I couldn't see South Carolina voters, you know, nominating AOC or Ro Khanna. Mm. Or Bernie, right? So yeah, let's let's dig into what happened with the primary calendar a little bit. Okay. Because certainly this year's edition was was uniquely suited to benefit Joe Biden. Um, and you know, reporting that Lupe and I did both for this book and more recently um for MSNBC shows that quite literally the call came from the Joe Biden White House. Because traditionally, just to go over this with the the listeners, it's an Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary, and then South Carolina primary. But the Democratic National Committee voted to change the rules so that it would actually start in South Carolina, not New Hampshire and not Iowa. Mm -hmm. South Carolina helped Joe Biden win the nomination. He did not win Iowa and he did not win (laughs) New Hampshire. South Carolina is essentially where Bernie Sanders went to die two times over. Right. They just don't like progressives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, th- I think the term progressives is a fraught one because there are Democrats of all, all over the spectrum who sort of view themselves as progressives, um, but they don't like the left. And for me, one experience that I always hearken back to is I was at this church in 2016 where Hillary Clinton had brought together the so-called mothers of the movement, the, the mm-hmm. you know, in the earlier days of BLM, the mothers who had lost um, their black sons um, in these high profile instances of police violence. And they were kind of anointing her. And I was outside this Baptist church and I heard, I saw these two women and they were just, you know, you're sort of iconic church ladies with their crowns on sitting there. They dressed up for this event. They were older black women. And I asked them, you know, uh, what do you think of Bernie Sanders? They said, I don't like him. And I said, why? And they said, he's communist. And I was like, well, you know, actually he's a democratic socialist and it's a little more complicated. They were like, don't like it. It's not American. Right. 
And it, that was so, that really stuck with me. They're pragmatists. That's what they would always say in South Carolina. Like, we're pragmatists. We want to pick the person who's going to win. That's why, you know, the Clyburn anointment really matters. He's a South Carolina congressman. He was in leadership for many, many years. He's kind of seen as one of the grand poobahs of the party, right? Right. And yeah, I mean, Clyburn's the big dog down there. And, and he very specifically fought through the civil rights movement. Right. And mm. and they don't want to lose those gains that they quite literally bled for. Um, and I think that's a big thing that we've tried to do with this book and a point that um, I think comes up throughout, which is you cannot paint the Democratic Party with a broad brush. It contains, you know, black voters, Arab voters, Jewish voters, young people. Um, it, it is a diverse party, and it's an ideologically diverse party all the way from, you know, your DSA over to Joe Manchin. Um, and I don't think we see that on the Republican Party. You know, that is a by and large white party, a by and large older electorate. Mm. They're starting to become more diverse, actually. That's the interesting thing about the Republican Party. It's becoming more diverse. They are absolutely making gains, particularly with Latino voters. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, certainly in comparison to the Democratic Party, it is a less diverse group. And then, you know, by its nature, being conservative, um, falling behind a leader who's taking a bit of a strongman authoritarian type tack, there's a unity to that. That the Democrats mm -hmm. just don't have. And that's going to be a problem for them. I mean, at the same time, you know, I'm always careful not to sort of sound like I'm saying one of those Democrats in disarray messages, because the reality is the disputes and the chaos we've seen on the Republican Party have included people breaking into the Capitol and calling for their own vice president mm -hmm. to be hung. The disputes that we've seen on the Democratic Party are over policy. However, with the Republicans having an electoral college advantage, the disunity that we see among Democrats on the presidential level may actually be more consequential. Okay. Can you give me a little bit more detail about how Joe Biden was able to heal the wounds and the rifts in the Democratic Party in 2020? Yeah. You know, there was a lot of real work that was done. And it started with these unity task forces that the Biden campaign set up. And that was where he had Bernie, he had AOC, he had um, veterans of the Sanders campaign and other progressives team up with his allies to sort of inform his first term policy agenda. Um, so they were quite literally brought on board in the beginning. And that extended through um, the first couple of years of his administration. Uh, namely, you had Ron Klain, who was someone that I think people on the left and progressives really saw as an ally serving as Joe Biden's chief of staff. Oh, really? Even voters knew about this or progressive leaders. It was more of the leaders. I don't you know, I wouldn't say hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't say Ron Klain's Q score. Is, like, is... Ron Klain's superstar? No, <laughs> but he was able to get progressive leaders and surrogates on board, basically. Yeah, I mean, we there was some real things happening there. So, for example, you had Pramila Jayapal, congresswoman from Washington State, chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus. Squad member. And she was on the phone with Ron Klain on a nearly daily basis and really felt that right. she was included. Um, she told us that he sort of put her in direct meetings with Joe Biden. But this was after Joe Biden won in 2020. This was not before the election. Right, right. So what, what I'm saying is the work to make that alliance extended from the unity task forces, which were a campaign okay. thing, to then what Klain was doing behind the scenes when Biden was in office. And that's part of why, you know, when it came time for him to try to pass his legislative agenda, the progressives, whatever disagreements they had, were actually 
pretty solidly behind Joe Biden. And it was actually what we termed sort of the radical centrists, your Gottheimers and your mansions, who really were threatening to blow everything up. Yeah, they were the foils. They let the progressives basically pass one of the biggest social spending bills of all time, essentially, the Build Back Better Act, the Infrastructure Act, and um, the Inflation Reduction Act. They were huge legislative packages. Yeah, th- this wasn't all superficial. This was this was real. Um, there were real policy gains for progressives. And then behind the scenes, the way that sort of looked is, you know, Biden, for example, gave them real wins on student debt. Um, and on his team's calls, you had people like Melissa Bernie, who, you know, is a real sort of fire starting activist on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And she was there participating in what are usually these rah-rah go team messaging calls, asking them tough questions and sort of rattling everyone's cages. So they let progressives in and progressives informed the policy agenda as a result. But to go back to your first point that I think is a really important one, we now see uh, Chairwoman Jayapal giving interviews with The New Yorker where she's saying, you know, the staff has changed, Klain has left. Um, Mm. she feels like it's a completely different administration and she's openly and repeatedly said, um, that she's worried the coalition is, is fracturing over Gaza. Um, and I think we're going to see her go even further out there with that message. Right. So what can Joe Biden do right now if the coalition is being fractured over Gaza? I mean, you hear these same squad members who have been quiet for, I mean, basically until October 6th, you haven't heard much out of them. It's been actually amazing to not hear a peep. And that's changed. So what can Joe Biden do about that ahead of the election? I think one of the biggest things for Biden is that he doesn't have a primary challenger on the left, that he has had progressives on board. That really is, uh, as you said earlier, the thesis of our book was that, you know, this truce was so important for him. And, you know, Jayapal's not the only one making noise um, over what's happening in Gaza. Um, I think, you know, Rashida Talib, it's been really notable to see her and her family, her sisters leading uh, the uncommitted campaign in in Michigan, um, you know, take this leading role. But what's interesting is the point that you touched on, which is, you know, the argument Talib and, and, and some others are making is vote uncommitted now, but vote for Joe Biden in November. And right. that's a complex message. And, and you know, it remains to be seen whether that degree of nuance and that sort of balancing act can can work for progressives who want to, you know, more cautiously express opposition and concern uh, to Joe Biden. Here's what I think, especially to like young voters who may be tuned out. They really need these young voters right now to come out and essentially organize for them, right? That's a huge part of the Democratic Party, door knockers, organizers, all of it. And if these kids aren't aren't excited, they're angry over what's happening in Gaza, they're reading their news on TikTok, they're just getting angrier and angrier. And you have these young progressive leaders like AOC, you know, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, just kind of like feeding the fire. Then they're going to like, turn on the switch in November and suddenly vote for Biden? And also, where are they going to be in August when you need to get people excited and out? Like you said, the coalition for Joe Biden in 2020 was an insane turnout of young people. And if if he's not going to have that this time around, I don't know how he wins. Unless Donald Trump severely bombs, but he's beating, he's leading Trump in, in Michigan in polling, right? By like three to four points in a lot of polling right now. So I think you've just summed up you know, a lot of questions 
uh, that are hanging over Joe Biden right now. And I, 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 I don't think, um, I don't think he, he has an answer for them. Um, one thing that I find really, really interesting, I think a lot of people forget how, you know, in 2008, when um, Obama won, uh, he did so largely as the anti-war president. Um, mm-hmm. I, I interestingly don't think he ended up governing that way over eight years as we sort of continued our right. engagement. He had surges too. Yeah, as we, that time. as we continued and expanded our engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then when Trump came in, he almost took like a, a Rand Paul style message of, you know, let's end foreign intervention. And, you know, I would I would say it was it was a little bit superficial because we had 30 plus named military operations in Africa during the Trump administration. We had the mother of all bombs dropping in Syria. But but rhetorically right. and in a lot of ways, Democrats have kind of ceded the anti-war ground to Republicans. Um, Donald mm-hmm. Trump is the one who, you know, and really put the wheels in motion to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He wants to pull out of NATO or... Or at least force members to pay more. Yeah, he doesn't want foreign engagements. They don't want to pay for the war in Ukraine either at this point. Exactly. Ukraine is the other area where Republicans are sort of taking this anti-war lane. And, you know, what's interesting with Gaza is I think we can all agree uh, Trump and the Republicans are more pro-Netanyahu than Biden is. Um, I don't think young people would be happier with Trump's position on Gaza, but he's not the president. He doesn't have to weigh in now. And I think Republicans over the past 10-ish years have managed to sort of take this anti-war mantle that used to belong to the Democrats. Um, And it's something that I think really does animate young people. So I was talking to one progressive the other day, and he said, it's so wild because, um, you know, Biden is to the left of Obama on so much economically, but he's to the right of Obama on Israel. And Mm. if you take that and sort of run with it and say, you know, Biden's to the left of Obama economically, but he's to the right on Israel. Meanwhile, Trump has kind of managed through Israel, Ukraine and a few other things to almost take Obama's left lane on on foreign wars. And I think that's really dangerous, particularly when it comes to the youth vote. The problem is that Joe Biden he risks alienating possible Republican voters that he could pick up that don't want to vote for Donald Trump, like Nikki Haley voters, right? If he gives too much to the left in terms of the war on Gaza, if he appears to be alienating Israel. So how does he thread the needle? <laughs> there it is, the million dollar question. I mean, I think this gets to the problem that, that you know, one thing that really was a central conversation in our book is I think if you look at the country, right, this is in many ways a liberal country. And yet, electorally, we often don't get to that result. And that's sort of one of the mysteries that we plumbed in our book, including specifically looking at New York City and state, which has kind of served as a lab for the progressive movement, Um, whether it be Occupy, it's the birthplace of Bernie, it's where AOC went Mm -hmm. and had her rise. We chronicle a lot of what happened behind the scenes there with sort of tensions on her staff and tensions between the DSA and even the idea of running for office. But, you know, New York has been sort of the engine of progressivism. And yet you look at the fact that New York was kind of where Democrats had some of their most unexpectedly bad results in the otherwise unexpectedly good midterms. You look at Eric Adams, <laughs> right? New He's York a pretty is a moderate leader. Yeah. And, and this is in, you know, arguably one of the, the bastions of progressivism in the country, New York City. And, and I think what we saw when we dialed into some of these city and state races in New York is that, you know, there's 
three things that that are bad for Democrats. Um, number one, you know, fundraising advantages that Republicans sometimes enjoy. Um, number two, structural advantages that Republicans enjoy. Um, and I think the the presidential election provides one of the best examples of them. I mean, the Electoral College, it, there's no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden will win right. the popular vote, but he might lose the election. Um, and then the other thing is that Democrats have trouble consolidating. Um, you know, we saw this play out in um, the Thunderdome race that that um, sort of Dan Goldman ended up winning um, in New York, where the progressives just couldn't get behind any one person. Um, there were like three progressive candidates that ultimately lost to someone they really weren't that satisfied with. Um, and I think that's kind of what plays out on the national level. Progressives have trouble falling in line as Republicans um some often do. The far left is not that different than the far right in the terms that they have a hard time organizing. Yeah. They have a lot of ideas, but not necessarily ways of executing. And chaos is sometimes what they want. <laughs> Burn it down. <laughs> and then also start you know, anew. They have trouble, they have trouble consolidating, and they also have, you know, this issue of structural advantages that we see with the Electoral College. Um, and so I think, you know, all of this puts Joe Biden in a tougher position. I mean, the, the Electoral College literally means the Democrats need to, you know, win by five to win by one, if you will. Mm, um, right. And, and you know, in a world where he needs to bring together Jewish voters, needs to bring together independents, some of those, you know, swingy Republicans that were so great for him in 2020 yeah. and were so great for Obama. And then he needs to bring together young people. It's almost an impossible problem and and it's you know Joe Biden's always had a lot of luck, um, or not always, certainly not over the course of his life. But in 2020, he had a lot of luck, um, mm. and we cover that in the book. I mean, he was on the brink of losing many times over, right, and right. I think COVID plus a couple results that went his way, including the app crash in Iowa, including doing just well enough uh, in Nevada right. to survive. You know, he he had kind of a lucky win and the luck is not going his way this time around because Israel policy is almost uniquely suited to just bedevil his, his tricky calculus that was already, you know, a tough tightrope to be on. Totally. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So what do you make of this resounding win in South Carolina that he had last week? 97% of the vote? I mean, South Carolina, we were alluding to this before, and I want to get into this, this, this thing with the primary that's super interesting. South Carolina has always been, you know, sort of, uh, not always, but certainly over the last couple of elections, this has been the mainline Democratic establishment's favored state. You know, this is where... Bernie got walloped. Yeah, Bernie Bernie got walloped there by Hillary. Biden, after he was on the brink of defeat following these losses in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, um, got propelled back to victory and relevance um, by South Carolina. Um, because as we were alluding, the, the voters there are, it's a 70% Black Democratic primary electorate. Um, they have been through it, and they are pragmatic as a result. Right. I mean, they 
openly talk in terms of that calculation. So Biden was always going to do well there. And that is why, as you say, he put uh, South Carolina, you know, at the front of the primary pack. The problem, though, is that you may have mentioned this earlier, but changing the calendar opens up a Pandora's box, right? So if he can change the calendar, can the next can the DNC change the calendar for another favorite candidate and in a sense choose an establishment type candidate that pisses off progressives, right? In 2028, we could be in another situation where the grassroots is saying, not again, we want this candidate, but the party has decided that they are going to, I mean, maybe South Carolina is just an easier state for the prime, uh, for the party. You're identifying something that is, I think, one of the most interesting and under-discussed stories that we've seen with this election. And, you know, I tend to think that we're paying way too much attention to the Republican primary because there is no Republican primary. Donald Trump has and is, has won and is winning. Um, and we have not paid enough attention to the Democratic primary. It's sort of a microcosm of the phenomenon that, frankly, led us to write this book. Like, there's so much reporting on the Republicans, but there's really consequential um existential crisis happening on the other side of the aisle. And there were major consequential changes to the primary calendar that have not just been reported. And this time around, they manifested themselves in um, South Carolina going first. But what's more interesting about the changes that Joe Biden pushed for is they include essentially perpetual review of the primary calendar. So every four years, the DNC Rules and Bylaws Commission will meet and it will have to choose a completely new calendar. Um, and that's extremely, extremely interesting because, you know, the last time there was a major change to the calendar was 2008, and it led to this extremely bitter Michigan and Florida fight between Hillary Clinton mm. and Barack Obama. This this has not gone well. Uh, essentially, the modern primary calendar came out of a huge fight, the, the riots that we saw at the 68 convention. So, so this is an extremely fraught issue, and the, the Democrats have essentially guaranteed that they are going to keep fighting about it. And I believe they frankly set the stage for after Joe Biden, like this is totally independent of Gaza. After Joe Biden did all this careful work to heal the rifts of the party, they set the stage for a fight in the future, right? And we already see it happening. They do seem to be flying by the seat of their pants, though, the Democratic Party. You've got to think about that. Even with <laughs> the election of Joe Biden as a bridge and then, oh, wait, he might be 86 at the end of his term. Might be hard. People will vote for a guy in his, their 70s, but will they vote for a guy in his 80s? No one really thought that one through, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I think a, a big, a big thing that we sought to explore in, in our book was whether or not Democrats have found the answer to this core question of who will lead them in the future and what will what will their message be? And I think by virtue of his age, by virtue of the fact that you know he that he didn't kind of definitively pick a direction between the progressives and the center, uh, Biden was only a temporary answer to this question. And what we see in the future is that, you know, 2028 very likely could feature uh, a, a left candidate like a Ro Khanna um, versus someone more, you know, establishment or, or center oriented like a Pete Buttigieg or a Gavin Newsom. And, and, and one of their crucial and most vicious and bitter battles will likely be at whatever hotel the RBC is meeting at. Um, and, right. and again, you don't have to take my word for it because, um, 
what we saw this time was the Bernie people sort of expressing upset that South Carolina went first. And we actually talked right. to Ro Khanna, who sort of already got his vision for a 2028 calendar that he'd like to see. And what's his vision? California first? <laughs> he wants Michigan. He wants Michigan pretty early. Okay, fair. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. He's been in Michigan. He's been out there stumping for Biden. Yeah. And, and as you say, he's been out there stumping for Biden. Progressives have decided to get behind Biden this time. He's also the Gaza healer now. He's <laughs> become the go-between. Everywhere there's a problem, Ro Khanna is there with a solution. <laughs> he just like drops in. I need to have him on the show. That's what we often see with these sort of, you know, proto proto presidential candidates, if you will, like right. like Ro Khanna is is running his early 2028 campaign now. And that includes kind of watching and weighing in on this issue of the primary calendar that no one is paying attention to. And it's been extremely fraught. It's been extremely divisive. And the reality is almost anything that they choose um, will leave someone unhappy. And I think it's so interesting because this was kind of an opportunity for them to rip the Band-Aid off. You have, an, mm. you have an incumbent president. You have someone everyone's decided to get behind, sort of establish something and establish that you're going to go with it for more than four years. And they didn't do that. And as you say, it's a seat of the pants sort of unforced error moment that I think, you know, come 2027 or so, we're all going to be like realizing this is a big deal. Both parties are terrified of their left and their right. Not necessarily the RNC, they would never explicitly do it, but the Republican establishment wanted Ron DeSantis. The grassroots wanted Trump. So there you go. The Democrats, too, know that their grassroots is probably not necessarily in line with Biden. And that's just how it goes. I mean, they're terrified of their their parties, um, or what their parties have become. <laughs> I think it's slightly different on the right. And it's so interesting is in their case, the leader, the figurehead, Donald Trump, has no problem with the fringe. Right. He he loves right. Laura Loomer. Right. <laughs> like like when he when, yeah. when he sort of when you, when you envision the cash Patel, you know, senior role in the White right. House, that really is quite fringe. He thinks the Proud Boys are, quote unquote, fine people. Um, so they have this weird thing where it's like the Republican establishment is sort of terrified of the people who are now in the driver's seat. Whereas with right. the Democrats, they've kind of managed to keep the progressives in the back. Um, right. And the question is how long they'll be able to keep pulling that off. Soon they'll get their driver's license and they will get this. They'll get to the front seat. All right. Thank you so much, Hunter. This was uh, really illuminating. And we'll see if Biden's able to bridge the divide if these kids come out and uncommitted voters in Michigan, they decide to change their mind. Also, how will it really, I think, will depend on how Joe Biden handles the crisis in Gaza if they feel satisfied in the end. I don't think anyone will ever feel satisfied with the way this is handled. No one ever does when it comes to Israel and Palestine. All Joe Biden needs to do to be tremendously successful is um, come up with a solution to the Mideast peace crisis that everyone is happy with. What an enviable position. That's so easy. <laughs> come on. No big deal. I'm, I'm only surprised we didn't manage to game one out on this podcast, but uh, maybe did next you, time. Doesn't I, Trump claim he did that through the Abraham Accords? Yeah, if that had happened, then why would we be here right now? Moving the embassy somehow didn't solve everything. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not at all. All right. Thanks so much, Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. 
That was another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. I'm your host, Tara Palmieri. I want to thank my producers, Christopher Sutton and Connor Nevins. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, rate it, subscribe. If you like my reporting, go to puck.news slash Tara Palmieri and sign up for my newsletter, The Best and the Brightest. You can use the discount code Tara20. I'll be back next Tuesday. Oh,